Good evening, or good afternoon, or good morning, depending on when you're listening to this. I just totally botched Jim Carrey's great good afternoon, good evening, and good night. But I'm known to do that. This is The Long Road to Ruin. You just started the show with the wrong movie's opening score. Yes, yes, I know. I couldn't find the Hellraiser one, so just basic Halloween theme music. All right. Downloaded it by now, if you told me. <laughs> no, we'll have it for next time, though. Uh, I meant to get to it earlier, and Mark said he had something on here from a... There was a techno band version that he said he uploaded that apparently is not here, but... Okay, so, this is great. Great way to start the show. Yes, I will be invited to guest host again in the very near future, I'm sure. <laughs> This is The Long Road to Ruin. I am not Mark Radlich. He would have gone through all of this flawlessly by now, and we'd all be having a good time. I am instead interim co-host, executive, managing, supervisor, insert various superfluous title. I am Robert Winfrey, and I am so very happy to be here. I have been a huge fan of this show. I've been on it twice before for two different franchises. I hope everybody out there enjoys it as much as I do. And Mark is not here. He's taking the month of October off, which lines up perfectly because the co-host, who you heard earlier kind of berating me for some of my technical ineptitudes, he and I are huge fans of horror in general, and the series we're discussing here particularly, that would be the Hellraiser franchise. And... This, in this particular case, it is not only a long road. There are nine movies, folks. Nine. Yes, count them. There's nine of them. And, but Ruin is actually something of an understatement because some of the movies, and this is some, one of the things we do here, we kind of bag on the bad ones. Some of those later movies, ugh, they're just not worth anything. And I know... My co-host, the man who's going to help us, he's going to provide rants, raves, insights, humorous sound bites, the whole nine yards, and hopefully the technical difficulties at the beginning didn't throw him off of some bizarre pseudo-rap that he cooked up in store for this. Sean Comer is here with us as always, ladies and gentlemen. Take it away, Sean. No, everybody, no rhyming this time. Actually, uh, welcome not only to Long Road Ruin, welcome to what is... In my eyes, and hopefully in Mark's eyes, and hopefully in Robert's eyes, a very special Long Road to Ruin. Because this is our one-year change anniversary of Long Road to Ruin. Uh, one year ago, back in 2012, uh, probably, actually probably right around, probably one year to the day, uh, Mark and I started this show with what was to be a three-part look at the Rocky series that... One year later, we never finished. Uh, we're working on that. <laughs> uh, but and we're all looking yeah. forward to it. <laughs> yeah, as much as I'm sure everybody looks forward to once upon a time to that, uh, look at disc three of the raw 10-year anniversary DVD set. And my part two of Terminator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh now, all kidding aside, though, uh, for a year now, uh, almost a year straight, we've had a couple times when we've had to, to take a week off for this reason or that reason, either just to recharge batteries or because 
life and day jobs and family and personal crap and routine. But for the most part, uh, every Tuesday night, myself and Mark have Tuesday. been... Every other Tuesday, right. Every other Tuesday night, uh, Mark and I have been putting this show together, uh, sifting through every major Hollywood movie franchise under the sun that we can think of, and Lord knows we still have so many to go. But even after 12 months of this, every single time 6 o'clock Mountain Time rolls around and I sit down here on the couch in the Fortress of Seanitude with... Seven Mountain. Sorry? It's Seven Mountain no, Time. No. It's, well, no. It's oh, never mind, never mind. Sorry. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get what you're Never, never mind. You've got to remember, Arizona doesn't observe daylight saving time. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So oh, why would they? It was designed for farmers. Yeah, right, right. Um, but for 12 months now, every other Tuesday, when we've been coming at you with this show, I I sit down here in the Fortress of Seanitude with caffeine in various forms and in high enough quantities to probably drop Godzilla from a heart attack. Um, and without fail, no matter how I'm feeling, no matter what kind of week I've had, no matter what kind of day I ha- I've had, no matter what else has been going on, every time I hear those opening Foo Fighters chords, it, it just lights me up. It It is my 90-minute to two-hour escape from everything else because I get to sit here and not necessarily... Not try to be snarky, not try to be funny, but just sit here and just talk about the movies that I love. And one of the little-known things about this show is the fact that this franchise right here, the one that we're tackling this month, is one of the reasons why I co-founded this show. It's because way back when I was doing Bad Movie Review Club with Jeremy Lambert, I had actually... Wasn't that about the time the ninth one came out? Uh, no, no, the ninth one had been out for about for about a year or so by that time. I had already okay. seen it by that point. But the thing is, is when we were doing Bad Movie Review Club, that was always one of the two movies that I really wanted to cover. But the problem that I had with both of those sought-after movies was as I thought about it, I thought, well, Jeremy is not really intimately familiar with these two franchises the way that I am. Not enough so that we could really get across what makes them so embarrassingly terrible and why they absolutely crippled their respective franchises. And, uh, but gee, that's, uh, that's too bad. It's too bad that there really isn't a forum that I have where I can talk specifically about... The, the art from the rise of a franchise and more often than not the complete utter plummet of it. And then the more we talked about it, uh, eventually the more word started to get back to Mark Rowlich that somebody else, some newbie to 411 named Sean Comer, wanted to put together a movie podcast based entirely on franchises. And so we got together, and actually, we we never really talked that much about it necessarily in terms of planning or anything. After we set the date for the show, we just kind of set it, 
the first time I checked in 15 minutes before a show was the first time I'd actually talked to him you know, live, voice to voice, and then we just launched right into the show. And that was it. There was no planning. There was no rehearsal. There was no big discussion. It was just instant click. But through every franchise we've done, I have wanted to get to this one. I have had this one in my sights for a good six months now. Because Mark and I love to plan this show way in advance. And when he first said that in October he wanted to take off, take a few months, overcharge his batteries for a while, I said, you know what, that would be a great time with it being Halloween and everything and you not being a big horror fan for me to go and tackle one of the many legendary franchises out there. And the first one that came to mind was, well, we got to do Hellraiser. And we started talking about co-hosts. And, of course, Robert, you've been on the show several times. In fact, you were our guest for one of my favorite anthologies we did, and that was Paranormal Activity. And one of my favorites, what? too. And if I'm not mistaken, it was at the close of the epic close of the second half of that one. We had the best overrun ever, folks. If you have not heard the second part of the Paranormal Activity Long Road to Ruin, all of these are archived on Blog Talk or on iTunes or various other locations. Find it because the last 30 minutes are just awesome in all sorts of ways. You know what? You remember it for the legendary overrun. And you know what? To be honest with you, I am throwing time limits kind of out the window on this one. I just want to chill and just have fun with this and just savor the fact that we made the gear doing this show. So I don't mind telling a few stories here. For one thing, those of you who are hearing that show for the first time, and you'll hear me mention it if you go and listen to it, I felt like hammered shit when we recorded that. Um, I warned Mark in advance. I had been coming off a nasty case of food poisoning. Uh, Which does suck. I've had food poisoning. So you have my sympathies. Oh, God. You know what? I've had some medical maladies in my time. But kids... Few things in the world that I can imagine will make you wish swift death upon yourself quite like that five minutes after you eat something that's just a little bit off and all of a sudden it's concentrated evil coming out of several orifices seemingly at one time. Yes, frequently at the same time. (laughs) And I've been doing this for a couple of days. So between... The puking and the coughing and the dehydration and everything, my voice was absolutely, utterly shot. But, and Mark even offered to let me cancel. And I told him explicitly because I was about three or four weeks removed. So actually, I sat through all of Paranormal Activity 4. I walked out of the theaters and I exclaimed loudly, what a fucking piece of shit. I was not, was not passing up the chance to rip into this movie. Mark offered to let me cancel it. I said, hell no. I have been looking forward to this for over a month. We ain't canceling. We ain't postponing. I am going at this. Even though I wasn't completely sure my voice was going to hold out the full 90 minutes. Well, we're going to hope that nothing bad happens to you between now and two weeks from tonight when we do the second part of Hellraiser, wherein you will get to rant and rave some more. Oh, 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 God. You know what? That's uh, that, that's the other thing that we got to explain. We're breaking this okay, up. Yeah. 
But we're going yeah, a step further. Um, this time normally, out, the, normally here on the long road to ruin, these are broken into at least one, two different parts. Generally, they're yeah. handled chronologically. Uh, the, Rock, the Rockies, the Rambos, the Paranormal Activities, you tend to go one, you know, A through Z, however far they go. That's yeah. not the case here tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We are breaking form a little bit. I'm, the, I'm stepping yeah. in for Mark, so we're tooling with the rules a tad bit here. Tonight we are looking at the good movies in the franchise. I mentioned before there's nine movies in this franchise. Tonight we're looking at the good. There's three. Yep. And yep. there. Yeah. Well, and I would point this out too. In addition to that, um, and this is another reason this is worth pointing out. Uh, this is also very soon going to be the first podcast that goes up on the Manic Expression YouTube channel. Um which is going to be, you know, it's ad revenue supported. So there's the slight chance that with enough views, Mark and I are actually going to make a, a little bit of money off of it. Um, in addition to that, in addition to, de- to debuting on the YouTube channel of this, what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to put together a series of nine short vlogs in which I on camera for the first time since I came to 411, will actually be giving you my very brief impressions on each film, on each individual one, because there's just no way we can get to all nine of them in two shows. It's just absolutely not possible, especially since, Robert, I I told you before, and I'm going to be a real bear on this, I am demanding at least 30 minutes for us to go after revelations. Oh, at least. At least 30 minutes. You're absolutely right. I'm in the process of rewatching it, and when I watched it the first time, I wondered why I didn't just stop it, and I'm wondering that again now. I know. I know. There are you sadistic, masochistic bastards out there who love it when I get angry, snarky, scream, and completely reinvent the way you see the word fuck. This is not going to be the episode when I do that. This is going no, to no. be one. And no. So if that's what the... you're here for. <laughs> no. If that's this... what you're here for, it's not happening this week. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. We get to be positive, which we like doing as well. Yeah, I'm not going to be going into a yelling, erupting pit of snark with this one. Um, this one is going to be me actually very lovingly praising what I think are three utter masterpieces of horror and three terribly misunderstood horror movies. Three movies that, well, okay, correction, one movie that I really dearly love and two more that I really appreciate and will watch absolutely anytime I can find them, whether it's on Netflix or anywhere else. Next week, you are going to hear me as we go from... The 20 minutes of Hellraiser 3 that starts sending it spiraling downward right down the line into me erupting into sheer, unadulterated fire of 5,000 Foreman Grills nerd rage by the time we get to the abomination of greed and injustice that is Hellraiser Revelation. You think I'm kidding? You think I'm just mucking you about here, son? Uh-uh. Oh, 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 no. 
No, you will want to turn your volume down as soon as we get done talking about Hellworld next week because it's on like fucking Donkey Kong after that. But first, first, like my steak and taters before the execution, I want to get into talking about absolutely everything that there is to love about this series. So, Robert, take it away. Yeah, and I'm... Let me just say, he, Sean is absolutely right. Again, if you've never heard our second part of the Paranormal Activity podcast, he has, what's the line from A Christmas Story? You work in profanity the way other painter, the way other artists work in oils or clay? Because I fully anticipate a potpourri of obscenity a couple of weeks from now when we get into that, and well-deservedly so. But we're talking good tonight, and the first one... One of the best horror movies ever. I feel absolutely no compulsion saying that. I have no regrets about saying that. The first Hellraiser movie, written and directed and produced by Clive Barker, released in 1987. One of the best horror movies of all time, hands down. If you're a horror fan, this is required viewing up there with Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, The Exorcist. This is horror canon. This is, you know, th- this is one of the books within the gospel of horror. And there's a very, very good reason for that. It is that good. And I've kind of put this out there before in various forms. What I believe I mentioned a little bit on the last Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. It's been on my Facebook and my Twitter. One of the things that I feel makes the first Hellraiser such a successful movie is it's actually an exercise in restraint. And wait, 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 I can hear you guys say, wait, what? How is Hellraiser an exercise in restraint? This is a gore f- Don't get me wrong. There's plenty of grossness within the horror, within the first Hellraiser movie. Oh, is that there? Being, that being said, in terms of disturbing, gory violence on par with horror, you don't get that much. And let me explain myself here for a second. I'm going to have to get into the a bit of the story of the movie chronology here. In the very beginning, when we see Frank obtain the Lament configuration, he opens it, fish hooks shoot out, it has to change and rip into his flesh. We then kind of cut away. We cut back to a scene not too much later when his brother inherits his house, is kind of how it boils down to. And we get a sequence in shot in the attic where... You see chains and the pillar of souls, which is this, again, it's just a piece of wood. Uh, It's a rectangle. It's large. It has barbed wire wrapped around it and various sharp implements and pieces of meat and blood. And there's a lot of grossness, but there's not a whole lot of what I would qualify as horror gore in the beginning there. And then you see Pinhead come up, and he picks up pieces of Frank's face and kind of reconstructs it on the floor. And then it fades away. And then you don't get a lot of horror, violence, and gore until the finale when the Cenobites appear and reclaim Frank and have their vengeance on him and very viscerally and very violently yank him apart with, again, hooks on chains. In between there, there is plenty of gross. You see there's a very nicely done stop-motion bit of animation where Frank's body kind of reconstitutes itself out of the ground. And you see him in various forms, 
reforming. He starts from like just bone and some slimy viscera, then becomes muscles and nerves. And with every person that his lover, person he's manipulating, Julia, brings back to him, he becomes a little more formed. Eventually, to the point where all he needs is skin. And I'm, I'm saying, don't get me wrong, it is gross, but it is not horrifying. It is not necessarily in the same vein as stuff you see from from torture porn for want of a better phrase here and that makes when it does happen so much more important so much more impactful the first time i saw this movie and you hear that little kind of a gong i mean i know it's not exactly a gong but you hear this bell kind of go off and it's all synthesized and then the lights change and the blue lights come up and pinhead appears you know uh, you forget the phrase. You know shit's about to get real. You know well, that it's going to be important, and you don't get lost and desensitized in a sea of how much how much accurate crap can we throw at you, like you do with Hostel or some of the Saw entries, the later Saw entries, where it just doesn't mean anything anymore. It's just there to see how much we can put on television. When Frank gets ripped apart, when the Cenobites show up and try to take Kirsty to hell with them, it matters. Their appearances matter. And all of the stuff in between is important for building mood and for building the atmosphere and for building the tension so that when it does happen, you are invested enough in the characters that you want to see what happens, and you don't necessarily want Kirsty to be dragged to hell with the Cenobites. Oh, that's that's true. And actually, this is one of the things about the movie that's really misunderstood. Yes, obviously, as he is in every movie, Pinhead is the prominent part of the poster. Leave with the tagline, demon to some, angel to others. But the simple fact is, it's for the vast majority of this movie... The villain is actually a combination of Frank Cotton and his brother's wife, Julia. They're they're really kind of the big bads of the whole thing. Um, and, and in fact, really, you never really hear, hear Pinhead or the Cenobites even referenced that much throughout. They're kind of mentioned in passing by Frank as just the fact that he's escaped from them and they're after him, as we established very early on on in the movie. But other than that, they're really not much of a presence at all. Uh, they're, they're kind of a non-factor, actually, for the most part. Yeah, I you mean, only see them in terms of actual screen time. There's that brief scene in the beginning where like said, Pinhead kind of reconstitutes Frank's face, he resets the yeah. box, and then they all get returned to their dimension and everything goes on. From that time until the end of the movie, you only ever see them again after Kirsty opens the box in the hospital. Well, yeah, I mean, most of, it, most of the movie is about the fact that Frank is trying to reconstitute himself by consuming the flesh of others that are brought to him by Julia. And everybody is sort of given a conflict in this movie. Uh, Frank's brother is kind of portrayed as being kind of a worthless, impotent, 
oblivious party at all. It's just a total bystander who has no earthly clue what what all is going on. Um, He's kind of a weenie, too. I mean, look, there's a sequence that leads to Frank becoming kind of reconstituted where they're moving a bed into a house and Larry tears it, gets his hand snagged on a protruding nail head, tears it yeah. open, goes upstairs, and he just says over and over, oh, I can't look at blood, I'm going to pass out, I'm going to throw up, and I just got the, you know, the guys are weaning. Now look, in deference to that, I've had similar things to that. I've moved a lot in my life. I've helped people move plenty of times. I have had things similar to that. I've never had that exact injury. And it does suck, but I don't think having that happen to me or looking at it to see how bad the damage is would immediately kick in my gag reflex or make me faint. You know, and I don't, I, I don't mean I, to be negative to anybody out there who does, who can't tolerate the sight of blood. That's just kind of life as far as some people go. It just strikes me that, you know, you're a grown man. You should be able to look at a hand injury and assess it at least without pushing out. Oh, no, sure. Bench it up, get down there, and get going since that's less beer and pizza you feel entitled to give to the movers. Uh, but he's really not set up as being unlikable. He, he's not set up as being an asshole or anything. Just he's, he's really not very engaging. He's just kind of the regular guy. He's there to kind of be a contrast that kind of tells you you can understand why Julia was fucking around behind his back with Frank. You you don't condone it, but you kind of understand how she was clearly getting more of a thrill from uh, the exotic, dark, mysterious, uh, sadistic bad boy who was able to make it a little rough for her, so to speak. And you kind of see where she kind of found that over. It's so it, it's not something that's necessarily hard to comprehend. And on the other hand, amidst all this, you have a woman who, throughout many of the movies, becomes well, he becomes the Nancy to Pinhead's friend. Um, the um, the final girl, the survivor, the look. I yeah, ma- I would maintain happily that uh, Kirsty Cotton, played by Ashley Lawrence, is one of the best heroines in horror. I'd put her up there against anybody else. You know what? Without a doubt. And I'll tell you why. And it's something I alluded to when you and I were talking very briefly before the show. There's a very unique dynamic here. And I cannot name another single screen queen in horror wherein I can say this about her dynamic with the villain, with the monster. And that is, what we develop is the fact that Pinhead seems to actually have a kind of respect for her. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't like her by any means. He, he still sees it as he's the predator, she's his prey. Make no mistake she about that. the box, she has to pay the price. Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. But keep in mind, this early on, there was a rule that was established that plays out throughout the next movie and partway into the third movie until they absolutely ruined it and really destroyed a big part of the mystique of the franchise. 
and that is that Pinhead has a rule. He says it explicitly in Hellraiser 2. And I'm, pardon me if I, if I get the phrasing wrong, but hands do not summon us. Desire does. It's bigger than just the fact that Kirsty's fingers happen to trace just the right pattern idly on the puzzle box. It's the fact that he kind of leaves her alone a little bit because, for one thing, he senses and the set of bites are able to sense and kind of un- and kind of understand that it wasn't really her intent to summon her. To summon her. That really wasn't what she was going for. There wasn't that dark hidden desire to explore the exotic danger of blind mean pleasure like Frank was. But it's also the fact that in this movie she makes a deal to help the Cenobites reclaim Frank. Makes the deal that if they'll leave her alone, she'll show them the guy who was really causing all the murder and bloodshed that the Cenobites see around them when they finally track Frank to Earth. Um, in fact, one of, arguably one of the greatest line, deliveries of a line in horror history was just Doug Bradley as Pinhead just growling at her. We want the one who did this. As he's pointing to the the big pile of gore and viscera that lays at his feet. Which is actually her father's body, but... Right. And, and as you go along, there's seemingly the appreciation that he feels that she's sort of a worthy opponent. She She's sort of a worthy adversary, and while that's what compels him to claim her, it's what makes her his Moby Dick to his Captain Ahab, Again, it's too much to really say that he likes her, but he feels a need to be kind of sporting about it, to to kind of operate with uh, a sense of order, uh, a sense of rules for the most part. And it makes for such a fascinating dynamic between those two in the few movies wherein they appear together, which is this one, Hellraiser 2, and uh, Hellraiser 6, Hellsea which was Ashley Lawrence's last time appearing uh, appearing as Kirsty Cotton. And but, incidentally, her scene with Pinhead is probably the best scene in that whole movie. Oh, oh, far, far, far and away. Um, wait a sec, hang on. i got to interrupt for a second. Okay, go ahead. Uh, just kind of to continue where Sean left off there, the relationship between Pinhead and Kirsty is, like I said, it's a very interesting one in that Pinhead seems to enjoy hunting her and have a kind of a grudging respect for her, so much so that he tends not to cheat, which, you know, he's been described as a demon, a devil, etc., so cheating is in his nature. At the same time, he doesn't cheat a whole lot with her. I mean, the most you get is... In the first movie, after she leads them to Frank, after she gets Frank to admit that it's him, and they get to claim their revenge, he pops up behind her not too long after that, after she's made this agreement, and 
looks at her and he says, "And you no, know, we made a deal." And he said, "Well, you know, technically, I only said maybe," <laughs> which yeah, was and, and true. He he did. He kind of lawyered her on that one. He said, "Maybe, just maybe," but he also did throw in there at the end. God, another great, another great line. So much of it. This is not for your eyes, or we have such no. sights to show you. No, not not that. It's just one of the most purely intimidating, chilling lines. Just for the way that bastard delivered it, we'll tear your soul apart. Yeah, if you if you try to screw with us, <laughs> yeah, Doug Bradley as Pinhead is just he gets. His ability to portray that character gets left out a lot when you talk about great horror performances. But for my money, that is absolutely up there with Robert England as Freddy Krueger. Oh, my God. You know what? There has only been one segment, one one bit in all of Doug, Bla- Doug, Bradley's, <laughs> Doug Bradley's portrayal of his pinhead that has just absolutely disgusted me and made me want to head desk. And I want to chalk part of it up to the writing, but another part up to going, Doug, why you got to ham it up? You know better. And that is, again, the last 20 minutes of Hellraiser 3. We're going to get into this in depth next time because... You know what? When I was watching it this past week to get ready for these podcasts, throughout most of the movie, I actually thought, well, this isn't quite as bad as I remember it being. Then we get to Pinhead in the church. Uh, and Pinhead yeah. go and Pinhead goes straight late eighty late eighties, welcome to primetime bitch. Freddy Krueger on our asses, mocking a fucking priest. Yeah, and that. What you what you have to remember, what you have to remember, is throughout the first parts of the first couple of movies, that's the vast majority of them. When he's on screen, he is cold. He is unfeeling. He is not the brain trying to take over the world. Pinhead and the the Cenobites, you you mentioned this earlier, and I feel the need to reiterate it because, hey, I love bad guys. In the first two movies, Pinhead and the Cenobites are not the bad guys. They are a force of nature. They're the wind. They're an earthquake. They're, if you stumble upon them, bad stuff happens. But innocent people will never stumble upon them type of thing. No, no, they, they don't go. They don't go necessarily looking for people. They just go after the people who just happen to find them. And it, even then, it's not really like they're evil because, I remember, they're giving these people what they want. These people sought pleasure through pain. Well, okay. There you go. Yeah. Someone told you that's what you want. Here's your doorway to all you can eat. Here come the chains, here come the hooks, here comes the leather, and here comes all, if you'll pardon me for copying a fastball album title, all the pain money can buy. All of it, right there laid out for you. And then these people, 
happen to find that it's more than they bargained for, and they decide they want out. They want to renege on the whole thing, and they try to escape. And let's keep in mind, these are bad people. The people who go after the who seek out the Cenobites, throughout most of these movies, tend to be bad people in the first fucking place. Oh, yeah. So it's... Yeah, it's... it's, it's yeah, they're yeah, not... Yeah, this, go ahead, go ahead. Make your point. Sorry. It's the kind of logic. And our audience on 411, there's a lot of wrestling fans out there, so they'll know what I'm talking about. Keep in mind, Stone Cold Steve Austin was a heel until he started doing the same shit he'd been doing to other heels. Then all of a sudden, he's a face. That's what makes it so hard to really root against the Cenobites most of the time. Because we established pretty early on, Frank Cotton is a piece of shit. He, he's not a lowlife, he's not a coward, but he is an evil, evil man. We established pretty early on through tone and conversation and actually pretty well-dropped exposition that there's a good reason why Kirsty doesn't want to be in the same zip code as Julia. Because Julia is an evil frost bitch. So, when the Cenobites get their hooks into them, <laughs> there's really nothing to feel too sorry about. It's really not until we see them start to go after Kirsty that all of a sudden we're going, whoa, 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 spare her, leave her alone. She's an innocent. Because Clive is trying to play by some certain rules here. And it's something that Sam Raimi always says whenever he makes a horror movie. The innocent must suffer. Well, in this case, he's saying kind of, but we also hear it expressed several times that the Cenobites have a certain sense of decorum. If, if that's the people leave with a horror monster, they're not out to necessarily prey on the innocent. They love them some suffering, but not enough to actually just go hunt down unsuspecting people. So, there's a rule there, and it's a rule that's shattered at the end of Hellraiser 3. Um, but, that's, and that's one of the things that I really like about the way this was developed, is this all comes from a Clive Barker pen novella called The Hellbound Heart. And really, that's kind of how this story plays out. It's actually having the feel and pacing of something written, of something where characters are developed kind of slowly. And there's a build to the scare. There's a build to the horror. But grossness is there right from the beginning, but things don't really get horrible until that final reel. Yeah, so, I mean, there's plenty of gross, and there's some scare and some intensity. I mean, don't get me wrong, but in terms of what you see in... I mean, there's a legitimate argument to be made that Frank reconstituting himself from a visual perspective of what you see is just kind of an anatomy lesson. Yeah. I mean, you don't see anything horrible. You see gross stuff, but it's not presented necessarily... It's presented in a scary way, but not in the same... You know, we're using the gore and the violence to make you scared. It's more this is unsettling in the sense that this guy has no skin. But it's not the gross that you get when Frank is yanked apart by the chains, which is a completely different kind and used for a very different effect. Right, exactly. And it just, it's, 
it's such a great story that's built up in terms of what the stakes are. And it, it's built so well because you know the Cenobites are there and you have a feeling they're going to appear again. It's just that they're allowed to be a looming, unsettling presence. If I had to compare it to something else from another medium, uh, it's really a lot like the early Silent Hill games. It, in fact, uh, that's, it's very atmospheric in that way. Um, it's atmospheric in the way the best survival horror games are, in that it's it's nothing but a presence that you know is there, and you never know quite how it's going to manifest itself. You don't know when, but at the same time, you have all these other events that are playing out, and just it ends up being a domino effect that starts with Frank obviously being taken by the Cenobites and then his brother tearing his hand on the nail and his blood on the floor reviving Frank. It escalates even further still with Julia being (laughs) murdered. Yeah, and leading people to Frank. And then finally, you have the Cenobites basically, you know, kind of Hell's Bounty Hunters sort of finally being led to. And that's kind of when you have the showdown of three fo- of three forces. You have Kirsty who's caught in the crossfire, you have Frank and Julia, and you have the Cenobites. Um, it, it builds so perfectly, so much so that actually Headless never got the sequel. I could have been happy if Hellraiser 2 and Hellraiser 5 had never happened. I could have been totally okay with the way this movie ended. With just the the final implication that the puzzle box has survived and eventually, one way or another, Pinhead and the Cenobites are going to claim somebody else. And it's going to be somebody unsuspecting. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm a, we're on a slightly different page here in that for me, that choosing between one and two, which one I prefer, which one I like more, kind of depends on the day. But you're absolutely right in the fact that there could have never been another one. I mean, there was success, so hey, we need more. Thank you, Hollywood. But it it does act in and of itself as a self-contained film. It's a self-contained story. You don't necessarily need any more after the first one. And uh, let's let's go ahead and note that this was the only movie of all nine. And so when we get to Revelation, we're going to talk about a, about Clive Barker's emphatic declaration declaration to this point that this is the only movie in which Clive himself had any direct involvement. And yeah. it shows. It, it does shows. show. I think, I think one of the good things about two, which we're going to get into now, because, you know, hey, we did one, and one's awesome, but two picks up more or less immediately after the first one is left off, and one of the That's things a, that makes it good Can, can we address the, this one thing before we oh, get yeah, go on for two, it. though? Yeah, we, have to, we 
we have to we have to praise Christopher Young's score. Oh yes. Well, he does the second one too. Well, he, he does the second one, but unless uh, did he? I don't think he did the third one. No. Uh, no. Three through nine the, each have different composers. But, yeah, the third one where we got that fucking song by Motorhead. Yeah, I like Motorhead, but I agree it doesn't belong. <laughs> I like Motorhead, but time and a place. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't belong. You know, Motorhead's Ace of Spades during Shoot 'Em Up, awesome. Motorhead during a Pinhead decides to kill everyone in the club scene, eh, not so much. <laughs> it's it's one of it's one of the saddest, most unfortunately misguided examples of this belief that every horror movie has to have a metal song on the soundtrack. It's not necessary, and if it no. it can work, but if it's forced, it sucks, and it. I mean, you can tell when it's forced. But it's, it's not, because this one has got a perfectly fine orchestral score. Yeah. Uh, for anyone out there who hasn't, even if you haven't seen the movies, have no intention of seeing the movies, pick up the score. Find it. I, I have no doubt it's on YouTube somewhere. You know, their iTunes might carry it. I don't know. There's, you know. Any number of ways you can find music. The Hellraiser score and the Hellraiser 2 score, both of them, are just such a wonderful example of how music enhances a movie. Because, and if you've never heard, I mean, we've mentioned this here before. I believe you guys have mentioned Long Road to Ruin before. Proper scoring is a huge part of any successful movie. And in some mm-hmm. cases, that's not having a score when done properly. Mm-hmm. But well, you absolutely need a good score. And Christopher Young, you know, you mentioned this when you started rewatching them. I, when I rewatched them, I paid attention to it. That music, it hits all the right notes. When you know, you know, when the Cenobites show up, you have the right organ type of, you know, the organ music that plays every now and then. Just everything that. Christopher Young did, as far as the score goes, was absolutely perfect, as far as I'm concerned. What, what I like most about it is just the very spare strings of it. The ones that just that just kind of just linger just so over the over the scenes where they're present. Um, they're not overwhelming, but they're just they're they're lingering. They're lingering in that same way that. The evil and the and the sadism of the Cenobite lingers over everything. The same way that Frank Cotton lingers in the attic as he's awaiting more victims to reconstitute himself. And that's really what this movie is about. It's about something that's that's lingering that you can't understand. That's not completely whole either in your perception or in its form. But it's there. It's there, and it kind of has its own intentions. And in that way, it it fits. It fits in the same way that, uh, that again, as you pointed out, when the Cenobites finally appear, all of a sudden, the music really does swell, and it does become kind of overwhelming for a little bit in the scene, kind of the same way, at that point, you got to imagine Kirsty's obviously feeling completely 
overwhelmed by all of the what the fuck is this, I don't even, that's going on all around her. Um, and, and one last one last note, and we're going to keep coming back to this. Ashley Lawrence, how did she not have more of a career in movies in general outside of these movies? Because really, and maybe this is just me, I can't really name much else of much note she's been in without, as I admit I'm doing right now, bopping over to uh, to her Wikipedia page. Yeah, I'm with you there. I'm looking at that, too. It's it's odd, because she is able to do, and in some of the later, uh, I mean, some of the later movies that she's featured in even briefly, she's still able to bring the character to life. You, you know, in he, in... Horror movies, there is a fine line between a a character that is sympathetic and scared and puts you there with them into being scared and to making you want to root for them, and a character that you really want to see die. And if you're a horror aficionado or even just a fan, all I have to do is say Reggie the Reckless. And you (laughs) will absolutely understand what I mean by a character that you wish to see die. Because <laughs> when you get, when you have a character that is able to walk that line, though, like Heather Langenkamp does with Nancy in the Friday the 13th. Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street, yes, yeah, sorry. But when you get a good actress to go along with that role who can make you... and Same kind of thing for... Oh, I'm going to blank on names for a minute here, and then I'm going to feel really stupid. The same kind of thing for uh, Ellen Ripley, Sigourney Weaver, in the first two... In the, Alien, the first two, I'll go ahead and limit it there, for the Alien franchise, or uh, Jamie Lee Curtis as Laurie in the original... Original, folks, you want to see a contrast in a character that you want to root for and one you want to have killed, look at John Carpenter's Halloween and then look at Rob Zombie's Halloween. Fuck you so infinitely hard, Rob Zombie, for being so inconsistent. Yeah, I like Rob Zombie's Halloween. I like his two Halloween movies, and I have my. they're not without fault, and the casting of Laurie and her writing is a big one. Because she goes from being, you know, Laurie Strode was the ultimate survivor girl for, girl for a long time. Mm-hmm. And she goes from being someone who is strong and you want to root for to please let her die quickly. And sadly, it doesn't happen. But no, and. But yeah, uh, moving into the second one, she's able to. Since we're praising Ashley Lawrence for the moment, Kirsty is a different character in that she's grown from the first movie to the second movie, which will happen when you see your uncle wearing your father's skin torn to pieces. And But she maintains that she's still someone you want to root for. She's still someone you want to see survive and get through, and... She manages to be sympathetic and never becomes annoying and whiny, which you could easily do as far as both writing and acting go. And one of the things that makes the... Go ahead, Joe. 
basically pants-crappingly terrified, as you would expect a real person to be after all she's been through. Yeah. Yeah, it's again, it's a very well-written and well-acted part for the first two movies. And even, you know, she reappears in... She has a brief uh, special appearance in three... Yeah. where one of the highlights of the film is just watching the grainy VHS recording of her from the asylum. And again, her stuff in Seven, which is Hellseeker, also very good. So the character has been well-written and well-acted throughout its entire life to this point. Mm-hmm. And moving into the second one, we find Kirsty almost immediately after the first one. She's now in the Chenard Institute, which is a psychiatric facility. And naturally people think she's crazy because, hey, demons came out of a box and wrecked my house and killed my <laughs> and killed everyone around me. So she's there for observation at the moment, and we come to find out that the lead doctor, Dr. Chenard, is well aware of the Cenobites and wants to open the gateway and figure things out. He's obsessed with learning things and figuring out how the labyrinth of the mind works, blah, blah, blah. And so he's quite happy to hear her story and in reality know, okay, wait, I can use this. He brings Julia back, much the same way Frank was brought back. He finds the spot where she died, in this case a mattress from the first film, shreds blood on it, From he gets one of his patients to cut himself with a razor multiple times because... The poor man believes there are worms and bugs crawling all over his skin, so he takes a knife and tries to cut them out, which a mentally ill person will do, if provided the opportunity. Julia comes back, and he's able to get her to kind of take him into hell, and he winds up becoming one, but kind of jumping ahead of ourselves there. But So here's poor Kirsty trying to kind of move on with her life, and... Here's Dr. Chenard, who very much wants the information and everything that she has to offer. He has a patient who is catatonic, more or less, but she just solves puzzles all day long. So he he gives the puzzle box to her, which she solves very quickly, and that opens the gateway to hell. And a lot of this film takes place in hell. And just to continue praising Christopher Young for a moment, his score is able to reflect the magnitude of hell. It's much more sweeping, and he has a very nice uh, trick for the deity over hell, Leviathan. Uh, Whenever it's on screen, the sound that it makes is actually the Morse code for God. So fun little tidbit there. Uh, I believe so. I did not know. So, yeah, just a lot of little things like that. And almost everyone associated with the second movie was involved in the first one. I know Clive didn't have a lot of direct input. The director was someone who worked with Clive Barker on the first one. You got some of the actors back. You got um, the actress who plays Julia Child, who plays Julia Claire Higgins. Ashley Lawrence comes back. So you have a bunch of people who were associated with the first film, so they're able to maintain a lot of the same feel, a lot of the same characterization. You get continuity going from one to two, more or less, which you gets lost when they, it becomes a blatant cash grab. But, again, that's 
coming on later. So, like, what are your thoughts on two? I mean, you you know, like you said, it doesn't have to exist technically because one can be such a perfectly self-contained story. But what do you like about two? What helps it stay within the feel and the emotion of the franchise? Well, you know what? I I think well, you could almost call it maybe a little bit repetitive. Uh, I like how Julia was kind of brought back in Frank's role this time around. I really thought Claire Higgins did an outstanding job. Um, right down to actually even adding a certain almost... Um, <laughs> I, I kind of like to liken it to a Maleficent from uh, Disney's... Yeah, that, that kind of quality to when she whispers in Dr. Chenard's ear, I have such sights to show you. Yeah. Um, she really is an, out, an outstanding foil in how she's been built up by the evil she's experienced at the hands of, at the, hands of the Cenobites. Well, another fun little fact, going forward with the Hellraiser franchise, and I know we're going to get into this more next week, or two weeks from tonight, but going into Hellraiser 3, the initial plan was for Pinhead to be dead following the events of 2, and Julia was going to reappear as the leader of the Cenobites. Which just speaks to how... Not only, and To be fair, that's a role she could have pulled off. I mean, Pinhead has, of course, become iconic along with every other horror great. But when you mentioned that you know they were going to kind of go a different direction... In retrospect, it's hard to imagine you know Pinhead not being in a Hellraiser movie. At the same time, Claire Higgins was such a good, did such a great job as Julia that it, it's completely feasible it could have been done. She had decided not to continue on with the project, and we got Hellraiser three as a result. But well, the the unfortunate thing is, is when it comes to Hellraiser three. Pinhead was the only damn thing connecting it to the first two fucking movies. Yep, Pinhead in the box. And, oh, are we going to get started on those substitute Cenobites he creates? Oh, yes. And because, because what in every manner of blackened fuck... I'm sorry. We're sticking with the good move. Sticking with the it's good a, movie. If, when we're bring, you know, we brought up as far as three goes, you know, yeah, all of the Cenobites are killed by Trenard Cenobite in the second one here, which is a real sure. shame because those four are to me the best. I mean, you have Pinhead, you have the female, you have Butterball and the Chatterer, yes. and they present yes, such absolutely. different. Vis- they present a bunch of different visual things for you to process. They're all scary in their own way. They're all horrifying in their own way. And they're all mutilated in their own way. And they're not which you get with some of which you get in three, they're not gimmicky. I mean in three you get oh hey, the guy's a photographer, so now his head's merged with a camera. Yeah, uh, and who actually says that's a wrap after he yeah. kills somebody at one point. You yeah. have a DJ who flings CDs at people. You have a bartender who lights things on fire. I mean, just... Oh, God, He actually yeah. shakes the up bar- 
the glass. <laughs> the, the bartender with the goddamn Molotov fucking cocktail martini fucking shaker that he uses to set somebody on fire. What yep. in F fuck? <laughs> you, can right. you talk... Okay, when I talk about going late 80s Freddy on something... That's worse. Okay. No, no. This is what... This is... Now I'm playing with, pow, with power because I told you comic books was bad for you. How's this for a wet dream, Freddy? Yeah. When I knew it wasn't going to get any better. What was that last 20 minutes? Okay. 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 Uh, we're still talking about good ones. Still talking what about I the like, second one here. So back on what, what we like about the second one. What I like about it is the fact that while the first story didn't exactly leave that many loose ends, it didn't exactly beg for a sequel to answer a whole lot of questions. I'm fine in this case with the fact that they told this story because... It was a good one, and this also would have been just fine closure. Dr. Chenard, I thought, was a perfectly fine uh, secondary villain in this. Somebody to be corrupted by Julia. He was that fine works. In, for me, he was fine until he starts spouting one-liners at the end. But <laughs> oh, yeah. so This one... That, that, that was fine with this. For the time, okay, yes, nowadays... You're gonna laugh at the special effects. I didn't. Oh, you're. Oh, oh, you're. Well, no, you didn't. But a lot okay, of people now. Some of the. A lot of this was done with stop motion claymation. Yeah. Uh, and yet, some of the stuff coming out of his hands is a little hokey. Yeah, I mean, when you actually see Leviathan, yeah, you know, you're gonna you're gonna want to just tell. Kirstie to just reach for her boomstick. Um, yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, a, a lot of it, I mean, some of it helps. Some of the mirror special effects that we saw in Ghostbusters, for God's sake. Um, but still, for a product of its time, it really is very, very good, and while it's not a necessary story, it's still a good one. It's still enjoyable, and even this one leaves off just fine. It's unusual for a franchise to leave off after two movies, um, because your typical your typical storytelling format is three acts. You know, first act sets up the characters and the very beginning of the conflict. Second half, second act escalates the conflict. Third half everything kind of climaxes and then you end up with the resolution. That's the way it works. But in this case, you know, you were already kind of playing with fire a little bit by extending this out another movie, but you got lucky because despite Clive not being not being involved, well, you got Ashley Lawrence back, you got Claire Higgins back, you got Doug Bradley back, you got Christopher Young back. You got most of the people, and you left it in somebody else's capable hands who was at least familiar with the tone of the first one and had a logical idea of where to go. So I don't consider it necessary viewing for horror fans quite the way I do the first one, but I would damn sure recommend it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, for me, which one I prefer, the first or second, 
it can it can depend on just the day sometimes. I mean, they're both very good. I mean, and we mentioned the original Cenobites, and there's a very important part in the movie where Kirsty reminds them that they used to be human because they've been brainwashed into thinking they've always been Cenobites. Yep. And Doug Bradley, basically with just his eyes, because he emoting through the makeup that was on him is a little bit difficult, is able to convey the slow remembrance that comes about, wait, I used to be human. And the other Cenobites kind of go through a similar thing. Of course, again, the female Cenobite's the only one who has the ability to kind of emote through the makeup, but the others do a good job of conveying a similar message just with body language. And it, you got back enough people that knew what they were doing and knew what was going on with this franchise that you got a good entry into the franchise. And again, some people say it's better than the first. And no. while I might while I might disagree, I don't think that's a point necessarily worth arguing, because both are very very well done pieces of horror cinema. Well, but the thing is, is now comes the challenge with this whole with this whole we're not going chronological thing, because unfortunately, after this, we got two more piece of shit movies before we finally got somebody in the director's chair again who knew how to tell a fucking story. And miraculously, I don't I don't know how in the hell because it had a it it is this. God, I'm even stuttering. I'm stumbling my words here. Because Hellraiser 5 Inferno, despite being, in my opinion, Hellraiser in name only, is better than it has any right being. Yeah. Uh, just to set up a bit here as far as the chronology goes, following Hellbound, which is Hellraiser 2, we go to Hell on Earth which I'm going to give a brief story synopsis just so you guys understand the chronology here, features after his death in the second one, Pinhead, or Elliot Spencer, who became Pinhead, had his, basically his id in the form of Pinhead, separated from the rest of his consciousness, soul, whatever you want to call it. Pinhead then is stuck in a piece of artwork because it was formed, it, it's basically what came out of the bed at the end of Hellraiser 2, he gets released when enough blood is sacrificed, and he is now basically everything that Pinhead was never meant to be. He has bad dialogue, he's grandiose, he wants to take over the world, stereotypical supervillain, blah, blah, blah. He gets stopped at the end, Elliot Spencer remerges with him, they go back to hell, and so on. And Bloodline deals with the creation of the box, it's told... There's three different timelines going on that they kind of tell. It tells about how the box was created, how Pinhead gained more power, and then at the end, this takes place far in the future, how the final descendant of the original of the guy who made the original box is able to create a space station that creates infinite light, which traps in and destroys the, the Cenobites. Oh, that's yes. oh, that's right, kid. You want a miasma of what the fuck? <laughs> we have two. We have two horrible tastes that taste absolutely putrid together. We have a horror prequel, 
combined with insert franchise here in space. It, yes. The two true. signs your franchise has run out of ideas is number one, when you decide to tell unnecessary backstory, Texas Chainsaw, I am looking squarely the fuck at you. And when you decide to launch your monster into space, except for Jason X, because Jason X had a sense of humor about itself. Yeah, I'm waiting for Deadites in space. (laughs) No, this is more comparable to hell, more comparable to Leprechaun 4. (laughs) Yeah, but that's just to kind of set the chronology here, because the fifth one in the franchise, Inferno which, if you're just swallowing strict chronology, takes place between 3 and 4, because 4 is the end. What you, one of the things that we're going to get into more a couple of weeks from now when we talk about all of the bad ones, but following Bloodline, it seems like Dimension, which owns, well, Dimension and Miramax and you know whoever owns the rights to the Hellraiser franchise, would take a generic horror script that had been submitted to them, add Hellraiser and rewrite and force in the Cenobites. Is kind of where it goes. In the case of Inferno, you have actually what would stand on its own as a pretty good noir, noir story. In, oh, yeah. Which is the yeah. tone how, that how, most of it has how, with a bit of horror thrown in. How's, you know what? How, how is that for fucked up? How, how's that? I mean, and for one thing, I would I would add to you. I'd add to what you said. Technically, every movie we talk about from now on takes place between Hellraiser three and Hellraiser four. Yep. <laughs> That's how far into the future Hellraiser four goes by the end of it. Um, uh, it's set in the year twenty six twenty six, if memory serves. But you know what, kids. This is the Kingdom Hearts of the Hellraiser franchise. No, no, seriously. Because um, somehow, some way, somehow, we have managed to take a well-acted, pretty well-written film noir story and thrown in, because why not, characters from Hellraiser... And somehow, in some fan-sticky way... It works. (laughs) The result is actually incredibly entertaining. It's actually good. It's dark. It's engrossing. Granted, if you're paying attention right from the start, you're going to have a pretty good guess at about where Pinhead is going to come into it. But... Still fun to it's still fun to watch, and I just—I guess you could say they kind of, sort of did the same, did something similar in tone with with Hellseeker, with the movie that came after this. Kind of, but for me, my biggest complaint with Hellseeker was it was boring. Which, if a horror movie is boring, Paranormal Activity four. You're failing right at the beginning. <laughs> but 
to set the stage here, Hellraiser Inferno, you focus on Detective Joseph Thorne, played by Craig Schaefer. He is a sleazeball detective. He is uh, kind of an amped-up version of Jimmy McNulty, if you've ever seen The Wire. He loves puzzles and strategy and chess games and word games and all that stuff to exercise the mind. He cheats on his wife liberally with hookers. He will steal money from crime yeah. scenes. He does coke. This is not a good person. Mm. The first, the kind of thing that starts off this chain of events, he gets called to the murder of a guy he went to high school with, and lo and behold, the box is there. Which, you know, hey, we need the box. And mm -hmm. he fools around with it, he opens it, nothing seems to happen. And I don't, we don't normally like to just recap the movies here, but after that, he starts, he, just, he is pulled into this investigation where a serial killer leaves the severed finger of a child with the fingerprint burned off, of course. At every crime scene, he kills in vicious ways. He's referred to as the engineer, and you couple all of this with the fact that Craig Schaefer might be losing his mind. He's not mm -hmm. sure if he's seeing things because he sees some of the he sees some of the cenobites, and you're never quite sure if he's crazy or sane or what exactly is going on until the end. When hey, an ending makes sense. Who'd have thought? And you're right in that you're never quite sure if you look at it objectively. You know, it's a noir story. He's got, you know, you got the hard-boiled detective. He has the voiceovers. He has the voice monologue that we hear from time to time. <laughs> a lot of it is focused on the, you know, the crime aspect and the investigation. And yet looming over it happens to be the specter of the Cenobites and what exactly is going to happen. And the whole thing just, it's tone, and everything, everything just kind of works with it, and it's one of the most bizarre mashups in terms of style and tone. But you I have never watched that movie and not enjoyed it. It is, it, like I said, it is the Kingdom Hearts of Hellraiser movies because anybody who's ever played that game, you saw the ads and you went, you decided to stir up. Final Fantasy characters with Disney franchises. This is going to be 31 flavors of shit. And then you played it, and then you went, more Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> I, demand, I demand more Final Disney Fantasy. Well, here we are. We might very well have proof that the Cenobites are, in fact, the guile theme of horror villains. They just kind of go with everything. I, I kind of want to see, after you watch this, you kind of want to see the Cenobites in more movies. You want to see somebody mash up the Cenobites with the notebook. Um, <laughs> hey, didn't. hey, if I get to watch yeah. Ryan Gosling die, I'm happy. Word. Um, you know, I, I want to see, I want to see Cenobites in Showgirls. Um, <laughs> oh, 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 dear God. Somebody out there, I, I don't care who you are, somebody get this podcast to Tommy Wiseau's hands because I have an idea. <laughs> sequel. We'll I have an idea. Anybody else wonder what happened to Tommy's immortal soul after he ate that gun? <laughs> uh, 
Oh, man. It's going to happen now, too. You know, some it might even just be a local theater production of <laughs> Tommy Wiseau's magnum opus, The Room in the lo- <laughs> in the Puzzle Box. Yes. Yes. Give me, give me, for God's sake, give me Doug Bradley and Tommy Wiseau trading dialogue. I don't care if it is just a five-minute fan film that somehow makes its way onto YouTube. Um, <laughs> that might even be the best way to have it done. Somebody, please, for the love of God, make this happen. I know Tommy. I know that Tommy will never turn down a chance to trade on this accidental nugget of awful. Okay, this, but this, kind of getting back to is, Hellraiser here. Hang on, I'm opening a word doc. <laughs> uh, but one of the things that I feel is important about Hellraiser. And that gets lost, and we're going to go into this in more detail as far as three, four, seven, eight, nine go. Is you actually get a capable actor, not a great actor. I don't think Craig Schaefer is great, but you have no. a capable actor in the main role. And one of the great things about Craig Schaefer's performance, and this goes to the writing as well, you know, this guy's a scumbag. At the same time, they managed to put him in a, in a position where he's trying to save a kid who's alive and his fingers are being cut off by some psychopath. Or him. You want him to succeed. You want him to catch the engineer. And it's an imp- and he's still a scumbag. But you know, it's like you know, Steve Austin was a heel until he did heelish things to other heels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also a minor shout-out to James Remar, as far as this movie goes. Oh, always, always. Always a highlight of anything he's in. Except Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Yeah, yeah, except Mortal Kombat. But then again, you know, you're following... And you're the following Dexter season finale. And the Dexter series yeah. finale. No, we can't blame James for that. <laughs> no, I'm he, just pointing he, out that he was there. Yeah, he was there, but I consider him pretty much blameless. Um, yeah, yeah, but okay. Getting back to Inferno, what you know, what are some of the things that you like? I mean, you mentioned the mashup just kind of oddly works, and it it's a credit to I think everyone involved that it does because you're blending kind of disparate genres. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think Nicholas Turturro also deserves a lot of credit for playing a really good straight man. Um, yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, who's who's a pretty underrated... He's a good side actor. He's a good side man. Um, uh, like some John of the people, Uh John Turturro was the Jeff Goldblum of his era, and even, and even he's really not too bad. But Nicholas Turturro is one of those people from the late 90s who unfortunately was kind of unfortunately was kind of sadly forgotten um the people who maybe grew up i'm i'm of course 30 years old so a lot of the people who grew up around the time i did might remember him from the uh briefly acclaimed fox drama new york undercover so this really wasn't that far outside his wheelhouse he turns in a pretty good performance um 
again, we already mentioned James Remar as Dr. Paul Gregory. Uh, it turns in a pretty a pretty subtle performance that turns into kind of a sinister one at the end as we get the as we get the big what a twist ending that I think everybody who watches this uh, probably sees coming roughly a mile and a half away as almost as soon as he's introduced. At the um, same time, if you there, that's kind of how you want some twists to go, because yeah. if you can't look back on a twist and have it make sense throughout the entire movie, so in some respects you can see it coming, it's a pointless twist. No, right, right, exactly. Um, you, you have to be able to kind of pick up on the clues. Um, even if I think, I don't know, you could argue they maybe did it a little bit better or a little bit worse, depending on your perspective in Hellseeker, and I could see the argument either way. Um, I'll argue worse you, next week. Just, or, I'll argue I, worse on the next one, just so you can provide oh, positive, yeah. positivity. Um, but it's really hard to sum up until you watch it. And it, it's a movie that really stays pretty low on the gore factor, too. Oh, yeah. Um, I, this is it, another one that, in terms of what made the first two so great, it's a lot of suggestion. It's a lot of anticipation. Yeah. It's a lot of you see, but you hear, but you don't see. You get suggestion. You see other people reacting to it, which mm. builds up which helps build tension so much better and works so much better than showing people as much gore as humanly possible, which is kind of what we get right. in some other movies. Right, right. It's franchise. Well, and the fact is, what what sets this apart so much from Six, which is a fairly, which has a fairly similar main character, a fairly similar focal point, yeah. um, and even even kind of a similar premise, really. Uh, yeah. is the fact that if you think about it, it's really it's really carried off by some surprisingly strong performances. Uh Craig Sheffer, who it took me a little bit to recognize him. Uh those of you who have seen the Robert Redford movie, uh A River Runs Through It, which is one of my all time favorites. Not a horror movie, but you know uh, he plays the main character. Yeah, he plays Norman McLean. Yes. He plays the narrator in his younger days. Um, delivers a, a very strong performance of an utter douchebag. Um, and at the end, it's really kind of a joy to watch him unravel. It's much the same way that in Hellseeker, uh, Dean Winters, who's otherwise... Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah, yeah for, is recognizable for his role on Oz and as uh, a Man. kind of generic, slimy cop on for about half of the first season of Law & Order SVU. Uh, uh, he's probably most recognizable as the character of Mayhem in the Allstate commercials. You know what? I just realized. I didn't realize that was him until you brought it up. Huh. Yeah, that's I him. I guess that is it. <laughs> yeah. Um, delivers a, a pretty nice building of tension and confusion and, and unsettled fear as it goes as it goes along, and really, really kind of sells the climax of Hellseeker pretty well, um, and and really works well alongside Ashley Lawrence in her swan song as Kirsty Cotton. Um, they're both tales of 
of psychological horror in which nothing is exactly quite what it seems. It's just that in Hellseeker, unlike this one, it's a little more random what the fuckery, often seemingly just for the sake of random what the fuckery. That that doesn't yeah. really go anywhere, that doesn't really advance anything. You never really feel like anything is getting anywhere. And that's why it's so easy to get bored with it. Unlike in this one, in which right up until you get to the big reveal at the end, you actually kind of get the impression that Detective Thorne is actually getting somewhere, that, that he's actually really moving towards something, and that the climax is going to make sense. And lo and behold, it actually kind of does. But... Oh, it seems like there was a negative that I was uh, that I was going to bring up, and oh, oh, I know what it was. If I have a minor gripe about it, it's the fact that if you're to really nitpick about the logic of this series, it's that the Cenobites have departed entirely from what they were meant to be, um, and that in that earlier in the series, they're the web that it, they're the spider that ensnares the fly in their web. They don't really have to do anything. They just have to wait for people to stumble upon the box. And somebody always stumbles upon the fucking box. Always. They have um, to. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, somebody's always going to take their fingers and stroke it in a kind of semi-masturbatory fashion. It's like and someone's always going to dig up Jason or remember Freddy. Uh, precisely. Precisely. Um, and then... They do their thing, and in a sense, everybody kind of gets what they want. You know, somebody gets somebody gets immense pleasure through through pain. The Cenobites get the pleasure of inflicting pain. You know, it it works both ways. In this movie and in the next one, all of a sudden, for Lord knows what reason, we've all of a sudden made the Cenobites some kind of uh, of event some kind of Avenger anti-heroes almost because in this you find out in you find out in the end spoiler that the truth is is that Thorn has been trapped inside the Cenobite dimension the entire time and since he opened the box with the hooker uh, right exactly and, and everything that he's been living through has just been the Cenobites punishing him for all the wrongs that they all the wrongs of which they're aware. Um which you'll get to relive fact, for all eternity. It's, it, it's almost like they can't stick with one objective. They can't stick with one life goal for very long. They are that friend who has got a new career every couple of years. Um you know when you know they they might go to college for one thing and then all of a sudden decide on a whim one day, I'm going to move to Japan and teach English. And then all of a sudden, six months later, they've decided, my real passion is that I'm going to move to New Orleans and be a street musician. And, and a few so months on, after so that, I decided, I'm going to move to Alaska and be a, clab, be a crab fisherman. Well, the Cenobites have now gone from just kind of idly enjoying tearing souls apart with chains and hooks to Pinhead wants to conquer the world, to... I will say this, as far as yes. five goes, it goes back to the sense that 
these people brought it on themselves. Pinhead is not trying to conquer the world. He is simply inflicting judgment and pain and suffering on people who open the box. Now, I will say, I'm kind of with you in that, wait, now they're torturing you psychologically as opposed to physically is maybe a bit of a kind of a question mark. But at the same time, what, what Inferno does is tells the story very simply of one person and his descent into hell. And that works. It, I mean, that basic story makes for great storytelling. Movies, television, books, any of it. I, in, in this case, it's more literal than figurative hell, though, is the only difference between, say, Vic Mackey winding up writing a report every day for the rest of his life, for the rest of his career, and Craig Schaefer being forced to relive the same three-day span for all of eternity, ending with him being ripped apart by hooks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but the really sad thing is, the sad thing about a lot of these movies, they waste otherwise actually perfectly good performances with really awful writing. Um... In particular, i, I got to say that about... Well, okay, yeah, we just established, fair enough, that Inferno, obviously, is the misplaced good movie mm-hmm. amongst all these people. Um, in, uh, in Hellseeker, okay, we get, good perform- we get a good performance out of Dean Winters. We get another excellent performance out of, Ash- out of Ashley Lawrence. Um, in Hellraiser Seven, we get we get a, we get get a, a sh- performance. We get a shockingly good performance from Cardi Fucking Werner, who for, for my part, mind, I will always remember her just being choked out, being killed by John Voight and Anaconda. I'll remember her for that. Others will remember her from Sliders. You know. To each their own. I haven't seen Sliders, so... Uh, that was kind of where she got her start, and in... <laughs> as I as I kind of joked before, um, she kind of fell into one of those categories where she's kind of, for the most part, usually just kind of a hot body in a movie. And in Deader, unfortunately, that was... That, that, that was Kari without even the breast implants. Well, they didn't encapsulate it, and she had to have them removed. Uh, yeah, okay, fair point. I'll I'll grant you I'll grant you that one. Um, that no sense blaming her for that one. But uh, but let's face it. Prior to that, that was kind of that was kind of her one of her claims to fame. That yeah. that was kind of the hook that was going to get her a lot of roles, as is the case, unfortunately, for a lot of actors. Um. But yeah, she gives a good performance in Debtor. Mm-hmm. And in and I, I know we're not going to go too much into the horrible ones, but you know, Hellworld has a half decent outing from Lance Henriksen. Uh, yeah, yeah. Although that's easy not all time great, but yeah, even though that is uh, even though that is easily far and away the second worst. 
story in the entire series. Hands down. Hey, look, we'll set it in the real world. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Actually, um, real quick, I do kind of want to kind of want to correct myself on something. I don't know okay. why I'm thinking sliders. Um, I think I might have been thinking of Beastmaster too. Okay, no, actually, I was thinking of both. I was thinking of sliders and yeah, Beastmaster too. Yeah, both and and Nash Bridges and Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero. And the oh god, she was on the TV version of Swamp Thing. Yep. I love you, Wikipedia. <laughs> I love you, right. long time. And um, and well, kids, unfortunately, therein ends the good that can be said about this series. Now, I want your perspective on one thing. Fire away. This- Okay, we've mentioned before, and we'll probably touch on this again next week or two weeks from tonight when we uh, look back on the series as a whole, but just in a quick preview of that kind of discussion, here's a series that has nine movies, only a third of which are good. There are good elements to some of the others, and we're going to talk about that in depth because there's a lot to complain about, so we have to kind of point out that there are some good things in some of the other movies. Hmm. The series is still, the franchise is still very strong, which I feel is a testament to how good the first two in particular were. Because there's still talks about a remake or a reboot or a reimagining or whatever the hell you want to call it. Insert various Hollywoodization. (laughs) And it would still have a fair amount of traction, whether or not it was done properly or not. What what do you attribute the longevity to here? Quite frankly, to be honest, it's not the fact that the movies are necessarily good. It's the fact that the first one is such a cult classic that it made an icon of Pinhead, and so if you, and so the more you can make him the focal point of a movie, and the more you can play off the more dinosaurs factor. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Um, <laughs> and just increasingly making more and more visible, the more you're going to be able to sell the movie to people who maybe aren't quite as discerning as you and I. Um, the people who, you know, will, will who will probably tune out from WWE five minutes after John Cena retires. Let me put it to you that way. They're the same kind of people who would do that. The guys who um, look at um, Pacific Rim and go, what, no Michael Bay? We want pot brownie jokes. Yeah, precisely. That's uh, that's what I attribute the longevity to. Although, um, unfortunately, uh, as a certain movie would prove... <laughs> um, you can't apparently just slap anybody into the fucking pinhead makeup and make it work. Oh, it, that... also has, it also has to do with certain people being consistently involved throughout it. Yeah, you know what? If you really want to pinpoint the point when the movies really started going south, you got to look at the part 
when New World Cinema, and forgive me, I'm a bit fuzzy on my history. I don't know if they were absorbed by Dimension, if the Weinsteins bought them out, or what the hell happened there. But the moment it was no longer credited to New World Pictures, and it became credited to Dimension Films, okay, that, that right there is when it started fucking going bad. If I had to point to one big, big steering factor... It would be who was at the helm of them. Because Hellraiser 2 demonstrated that even if you don't have Clive Barker necessarily at the helm, it can still be done. You've still got Doug Bradley. Doug Bradley is still Pinhead. He knows how to make Pinhead save the picture. Occasionally, you even get somebody halfway capable in the director's chair or in the writer's room who, or in front of the camera. In, who in what can only be described as a room full of retarded, brain-injured monkeys taking breaks from flinging poo every couple of minutes to type away at typewriters, accidentally managing to churn out Hamlet. You also yep. occasionally you, you get semi-capable people in there who manage to churn out good performances, even if the story sucks. The problem is, after six, after Hell, I should say after seven, after Hellraiser Debtor, which is the aforementioned one wherein I admit I'm probably being a little too cruel to Kari Wurr here, you all of a sudden have almost none of what I mentioned above. You are down to Doug Bradley, and that's about fucking it. Yeah. You don't have. You don't have anybody competent carrying the starring the starring roles because in Hellraiser in Hellraiser Eight Hellworld you have an ensemble cast of fuckwits about whom I'm given no reason to give a squirt of shit. Lance Henriksen, God love him, trying, and oh yeah, and Henry Cable is in there too, eh. which. Is a selling point on the movie about the same, about the same way, you know. You can sell the whole nowadays based on, oh, what's her name, the chick from Pirates of the Caribbean, having been in it very early in her career and taking her top off. It, you know, um, in that the early Keira Knightley. For some, Keira Knightley, thank you. I knew it was something with a K. Um, you you want to have some real fun? Go back and. Uh... Go go through your Walmart bin of DVDs. See if you can find a movie called The Hangmen, which will it will claim is starring Oscar winner Sandra Bullock. <laughs> it is not yeah, starring Sandra Bullock. I have that movie. Well, I have seen that well, movie. Exactly. It's a bad movie that you can sell later because it starred somebody else before they went and did a good movie. Kind of um, a cameo, actually, from her. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. That all goes to the same point. But you, but you have all those things going for, going for them. But as you can see as you're going along, and as there's less and less involvement from the people who were involved with the first two movies, they just become progressively more and more incompetent with a brief break of awesomeness in between. That is the happy accident of Hellraiser Inferno. Yeah, if you watch these one through nine. Without the happy accident of Hellraiser Inferno, you're about ready to commit suicide by the end. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, exactly. 
especially since, and guys, I'm going to break this to you right now. When I get to Hellraiser Revelations, my big problem with this, and this is where you have to remember nobody complains like a fan, is the story behind why this movie got made at all. And let's chew in on a little secret here. (laughs) There was actually a better movie that was also in the works at the time. There was going to be one with genuine effort. One that directly involved, for the first time in nine goddamn movies, Clive motherfucking Barker. Before he was kicked (laughs) off the goddamn project. Yeah, and... Yeah, tune in two weeks from tonight when we go in-depth about Hellraiser Revelations and why it is so... Look, Mark Radlitz has the joke that it's so bad it should be studied. There's some legitimate truth to elements of that. You study something bad so that it can't go bad again. Little preview, Hellraiser Revelations is so bad, if I had a time machine and could go back and undo something from the past, I would seriously consider going back and stopping this movie from ever being made. You know what? Let me go ahead and give you two more words that's going to tell you explicitly why I hate this goddamn movie on par with, I could argue, probably only Highlander 2 and Paranormal Activity 4. Found footage! (laughs) Yes. Yes, it's... Uh, found footage should not mix with Hellraiser. Found footage is a completely hit-or-miss format. Okay? Oh, yeah. For every, for every Grave Encounters, there's that one shitty Amityville sequel that was told with security cam footage. Oh, yes, that exists. That's the thing. Yeah. For, ev- for every Blair Witch Project... There's Blair there's Witch a- Project 2. Well, no, Blair Witch... Pro- technically, that wasn't found footage. Um, no, no, it wasn't, but... Oh, even better. For every Blair Witch Project, there's a diary of the fucking dead. Or a survival yeah. of dead. Yeah, it's... It's, it is either great because somebody had a great idea and executed it well, grave encounters, or somebody just decided, I'm going to take the idea of a shaky cam and actors who aren't acting like they're acting, and it'll just work automatically because, because well, other movies have looked that way and done well. Grave Encounters 2. Yeah. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that concept. Think about all the great cinematography that made the good Hellraiser movies so damn good. And now, now, I want you to think about somebody trying to tell that same kind of story 
with a couple of fucking drunken teenagers in Tijuana with a handy cam. Yes. It's, and they want you to remember. Every last one of you remember what I'm doing for you people for free. Because <laughs> you subject yourself to that movie again? I watched it once. I know what hunts us. <laughs> and instead of running from it, I'm doing like that one fucking American Indian badass motherfucker in Predator did, throwing away we'll my gun. You and I will stand yeah. together on front of the in front of the tree crossing the gorge, and we will buy time for everyone else to get to the chopper. God damn yes! I'm watching this again for you, and in fact, it's even worth it's even worth pointing out. And I, I'm not angry about this, even though I sound like it. The the email that I got mid-show was actually from James of Manic Expression. YouTube has shit-canned their channel. Oh, that sucks. What for? You know what? He doesn't say, um, but if I had to guess, I would say it's probably for the same fair use reasons that have probably managed to shit-can the uh, YouTube runs of before us, uh, Doug Walker, Brad Jones, Noah Antweiler, uh, uh, I think the Angry Video Game Nerd at one point. You know, everybody helps. It keeps Matthew of Botchamania changing his handle every couple of weeks, it seems. Basically, anybody else who's ever become a a total favorite of of Internet reviewers. Probably the same, probably roughly that. well, yeah, however he, I know Mark however has he, one, so we'll, I, we might be able to get it up there while they're getting reset. Well, he he does he does say, and I quote: "Good news, we have another plan, and that plan is going forward rather well. By the time by the time you'll be ready for everything, I'll have more details for you." So, right. so yeah, we'll so provide more information as we get it here, folks. Uh, uh, yeah, pretty much. But the future is yes, we are eventually going video. In addition to it still being available via Blog Talk Radio for download to your your iPod or whatever other MP3 player, um, but yeah, so the YouTube plans are momentarily on hold. If I had to guess, and this is purely just pulling it out of my ass speculation, I would say I would guess chances are they're probably either looking at doing something with Springboard, Vimeo. Or Blip TV, maybe as some other hosting service. Um, but in any case, <laughs> God, I came down off that Hell Revelations rant rather quickly. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I, I was impressed. I was impressed. Normally, you take a while to wind down. That was you got your brakes tuned. It looks like. <laughs> oh God! Next week, folks. Don't be or two weeks from now. Don't be surprised if there is alcohol. Don't be surprised if I'm slurring my words by midway through the show because, uh, again, I don't do this because I hate these movies. I get that mad with some franchises because I love them and I hate what becomes of them when people who just don't care take over and just see dollar signs. And, And again, I'm saving it for next week. I'm saving the Clive Barker quote for next week. Because it is absolutely one of the most epic statements about a movie I have ever, ever. heard. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It, it's an awesome one. 
it, so it is tune into that next week. And yeah, yeah, Doug Bradley was actually polite. He tried yes, to be so yes, much. Yes, he was. Yeah, he, he, he played nice with it. Clive said, fuck that noise. I saw what you did to my baby. Yeah, so, ladies and gentlemen, if you've enjoyed this brief intro and brief uh, teaser trailer for the rants to come, two weeks from tonight we will be back, well, depending on when you're listening to this, we will be back a couple of more weeks, and we will talk about the bad ones, and there will be epic ranting, and it will be glorious if you happen to enjoy that sort of thing, because I know... Angry Angry Sean has to be a meme. We need some kind of a Hulk face with your that we could put up on the YouTube, on a YouTube page or something to go with your rants. Or if there's an enterprising if there's an enterprising young soul out there, I have to imagine there's something fun that can be done similar to the now infamous minus fifty DKP rant. You know the the only thing I can think of, and I'm hesitant to use it because it doesn't even look like me anymore. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, I was introduced to the room, like a lot of people, via uh, uh, Doug Walker's Nostalgia Critic review. Um, I had never heard of it until that point, and then I and then I saw it, and um, <laughs> at the time, I just I, I, I took a quick cell phone snap of my reaction shot to one of the scenes I was watching. And um, I, I seem to remember I, I sent it directly off to uh, Scarlet because I was bored at work at the time. Um, <laughs> I, seem to, I seem to think she absolutely loved it. So I'm almost tempted to just make that one my general reaction shot. Even though, <laughs> if you've seen a picture of me really recently, I'm clean-shaven and I have long hair now. At this point, I had short hair and a beard. When we start getting to play around with YouTube and various, and since we can kind of play with what goes up on the screen at what time, we'll have to get on that and see what kind of shenanigans we can get up to. I'm sure we can. I keep telling Rodelich that we've got to get the guy who did um, uh, Robert Cooper's uh, Three Beards caricature. (laughs) That would be pretty good. Because um, there, there are some good title card artists out there who can really take some um, some really wonderful people and really make them look fantastic with their artwork. Um, unfortunately, there's there's no way we're big time enough to ever get them to do work for us. I'm, I'm thinking of um, uh, Andrew W. Dickman did a did a really nice one of uh, Scarlet at one point when she was still working on the Spoonie experiment and has done work for a ton of other people. Uh, Kitsune does some great title cards. Uh, oh, God, I'm trying to remember the one who does um, uh, uh, Allison Pregler's when she does her charm reviews and Spirits of the Presents. I think she's got uh, two people. Yeah, you're out of my depth. I got no idea. But, um, but, but yeah, some, yeah, something to look up for there. next. Something to look like, up for yeah, next time. Somebody out there has got to be able... To, to even do like a bit strips comic or something with <laughs> something with Mark and Robert and I for some of these shows. Yeah, we we everyone who's on these needs their own character that can then be uh, 
put up, even if it's just a stick figure. I mean, if you've ever seen the stuff done by, um, oh, I think it's Extra Credits. I don't know if you've seen any oh, other stuff, but just yeah. some funny little stuff like that. Yeah, um, I really gotta. We really gotta get somebody out there to do a title card. The only unfortunate thing is we can't pay anybody. Uh, we'll figure something out. Um, well, that's gonna yeah. wrap up talking about Hellraiser for this week. We're all going to recharge and be back here in two weeks when we will talk about the bad ones, which will be. I've mentioned it before. It's gonna be a fun time. So I hope you all. We'll join us again then. Sean, what do you got coming up? Do your plugs, anything you want to say right here before we get done. Mm, for sure. Um, the main thing that I've got coming up is the fact that this coming Sunday, uh, I'm going to be wrapping up my cop, wrapping up the look up on my column, uh, Give Life Back to Music, over in the 411mania.com music zone, at the legacy of John Mayer. Uh, once more, I'm going to kind of cop out and hit his last two albums with one edition. And I'll also announce who my next artist I'm going to be looking at is going to be. Uh, and really, 411-wise, it's pretty slow because the only other thing that I've got going on is this month, I am going to be crossing over between working on Long Road to Ruin and also being on a certain somebody else's movie-related podcast. Yep, that's right. Uh, this whole month, we're fo- over at my regular, my regularly scheduled podcast, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. Is all horror villain month, horror-themed stuff. Uh, the latest one is up on Blog Talk and various other formats if you wish to download it. I did not convey to Sean accurately the time that it was going to be done, so you get 80-some-odd minutes of me talking about slasher villains, so... Hopefully that's not too boring for everybody out there. Uh, This coming Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, Sean Comer will be joining me for the next installment. We will be talking about horror haunted locations. So so we're going to be looking at the Hotel from the Shining, the Amityville Horror, Poltergeist, all kinds of fun stuff like that. Um. Before we go, do you mind if I just get in uh, one last kind of little little thank you speech to everybody? Nope, go for it. Um, to mark the occasion, I just kind of want to take a brief second, uh, and hopefully Blog Talk Radio is not going to cut us off here, uh, in which I want to thank some of the people who have kind of either directly or kind of quietly helped to make this show so much fun and so memorable for me. Uh, first off, i got to go back and thank Jeremy Lambert and Sam or Katie for being the people who really got me involved in podcasting in the first place, uh, who kind of gave me my entryway to 411 Mania, along with the people who kind of gave me a gig in the first place. Uh, I've got to thank Ashish and Larry Zonka and Jeremy Thomas for giving me both the written and podcasting forums, and also Mark as well, of course. Uh, to do what we do and talk about the things that we love, whether it's music or movies or MMA or wrestling. Uh, Those are kind of the most direct people. I want to thank the people who have been good enough to guest on this show with us several times. Uh, I want to thank Patrick Mullen, um, Gavin Napier, Robert 
Uh, you, Robert, of course, for several times you've come on the show. Uh, Robert Cooper's been on a number of times. Sam or Katie's always got an open invitation. Lambert, haven't forgotten, buddy, that we still owe you a chance to defend Transformers when we can get it scheduled. Um, I want to... Uh, also, there's the the many people who have kind of influenced me to do this from the beginning with their work and their, their passionate and dedicated online reviewing that, that inspired me to do this in the first place. Uh, so kind of, even though they'll probably never hear this, uh, the likes of Doug Walker, the nostalgic critic, uh, Lindsay Ellis, the nostalgic chick, um, uh, most people won't expect me to probably say this, but God thank Noah Antweiler, the spoony one for being a big early inspiration. Uh, Brad Jones, Allison Pregler, who's also become kind of a friend of mine behind the scenes and a source of support sometimes. Uh, any number of other other people. And last but not least, i got to thank my friends who encourage me and listen to the show so often. Uh, i got to thank... Uh, Jackie, Weinstein, Jackie Weinstein, who's been kind of a super fan from the very beginning, listens to every single show. Uh, i got to thank Cole, the film twit, and Jeremy, uh, Tim, the various other people who have encouraged, encouraged me along the way. You know, Scarlet, of course, for giving me what's become almost a catchphrase, uh, never dull your colors for someone else's canvas. Uh, this is something that I really love doing, and it's something I want to keep on doing until I don't love doing it anymore. So thank you to everybody. It means a lot to have an audience out there that listens to this on a regular basis and provides feedback and takes an interest. And if I didn't mention you, please know that's not because I don't appreciate it. It's because I'm just kind of doing this off the cuff, off the top of my head, and just know that I, I appreciate every last one of you. And here's to hopefully another 12 months of getting together every two, every other Tuesday of every month, so that we can all just sit around and just talk shit about movies. So. And here's to continuing to avoid finishing off the Rocky franchise. Oh, we're not going to avoid that forever. We'll we'll get to the Tommy Morrison Memorial podcast. Yeah, I'm sure you will. And let me just say to Mark and to you as well, I'm a big fan of this series. That's why I like being on here so much. I I really enjoy what you guys do. It's a lot of fun to listen to, even if I'm not contributing. So thank you for doing it, and I do hope you guys keep doing this for a while now. Cheers, sir. And with that, we're done for the evening. Again, we'll be back in two weeks looking at the bad Hellraiser movies. Uh, Sean and I both write for 411 Mania, which you can check out for all of your ongoing pop culture needs and a variety of topics. And that does it for us. I don't know where the outro music is, so I'm going to hit you with Halloween one more time, and I will have some appropriate Hellraiser-themed music next uh, next time, I promise. And I'm going to steal Mark Radulich's goodbye, because this is his show. Be well, be safe, and behave.